Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Why can't we feed the world? Is it possible to cure cancer? What will it take for governments and citizens to commit to act on climate change? Why haven't we solved the issue of equal pay for equal work? Why are so many people trapped in work that doesn't pay in one of the world's richest countries? Yes, there's a lot to worry about these days, but there are so many people working on solutions. I'm Maeve Higgins, and this is Solvable. Interviews with the world's biggest thinkers who are working to solve the world's biggest problems. My Solvable is to get 1 million women and girls to learn how to code by the year 2030. My Solvable is that refugees and displaced people should have poverty rates, inequality rates, lack of opportunity no greater than the rest of the population. My solvable is to take energy to where communities are. We are not going to solve poverty in the 21st century if we don't solve energy poverty. I have a solvable too. It's sharing these solutions wherever and however I can. I'm a contributing writer for the New York Times and the host of the podcast Mave in America Immigration IRL and the Climate Justice podcast Mothers of Invention with Mary Robinson. I'm also a comedian and I've performed all over the world. Now I live in New York where I write and podcast about things I care about and I do so with some levity and some hope because I think that's important. So does the Rockefeller Foundation. And that's why we're making this podcast together with Pushkin Industries to introduce you to some of the incredible people who are making a real difference to millions of lives around the world. Get ready to be seriously inspired. (laughs) 
In this, our first episode, Malcolm Gladwell interviews Roseanne Haggerty. Roseanne is an internationally recognized leader in developing innovative strategies to end homelessness and to strengthen communities. She's the president and CEO of Community Solutions. That's an organization that helps people around the world find what works where they live to solve homelessness for every individual who needs that help. Now, a bit of context, because it's hard to understand the scale of this problem without some numbers. More than half a million people in the United States experience homelessness on any given night, and nearly 200,000 of those people are unsheltered. That means they're on the streets without access to emergency shelters or transitional housing. But Roseanne says that tackling this at the individual level is a key to solving it for everyone. Her organisation builds neighbourhood partnerships that bring together local residents and institutions to actually change the conditions that produce homelessness. It's an approach Roseanne has developed over nearly 40 years of working on the problem. Back in 1982, she spent a year after high school working in a homeless shelter right here in New York, and that's one experience that's really fuelled her activism. As you'll hear, Roseanne and Malcolm know each other. Back in 2006, Malcolm wrote a New Yorker article called Million Dollar Murray about why it may be easier to solve rather than just manage homelessness. That piece really rang true for Roseanne and they catch up on development since then. All right, let's take a listen and I'll talk to you after. I think it's uh, significant that in 1982, the problem of homelessness in New York City was of a very... You know, relatively small scale. It was growing. It was terrible for people experiencing it. But it was possible to believe as a young person that uh, this was an entirely containable and solvable problem. No one had good information there, but the estimates were maybe 3,000 people in a city of pushing 8 million. My overwhelming impression was um, we're asking the wrong questions. I remember thinking there was this huge disconnect between what our ideas were, the the people kind of responsible for identifying or naming the problem, and what the young people or the women were saying. These young people were looking for help with finding a place to live, finding a job. And my instructions as a volunteer was how to turn on the coffee and put away the cots in the morning. No one had given us any information about how to help people connect with the things they needed. And so it was that sense of disconnect and sort of the gap between you know, what, what people experiencing the problem were seeking and what we were set up to provide that I think really plunged me into this work permanently, that mm-hmm. you know, there is a sense of we're coming about this in, in a way that doesn't match the nature of the problem. Talk to me about housing first, because that's a, as an outsider, it is not obvious to us. If you asked me naively, I would have said the opposite. You need to get people you know, their mental health issues addressed, their employment dealt with, their family life straightened out before you get them stabilized in housing. And you say, and this idea is the opposite of that, housing first. Right. Housing first has become a hugely important principle, but still not completely and fully adopted. But think of it, this is something we all know. How are we going to accomplish anything in our lives? Uh, you know, hold a job, maintain stable relationships, manage our health if we don't have a stable place to live. And this notion of stable housing is just so basic. But in fact, 
you know, for many years, you know, it, it became inverted, as you say, Malcolm, where you know, there was a sense that people needed to have insight into their mental illness or needed to be clean and sober or needed this, needed that. Housing was conditional on, on behavior. And in fact, people's other conditions, they vastly improve you know, once there's a stable environment for them to live in and to manage their other needs from. And uh, the fact that this still is contested is is one of the things that really needs to be challenged everywhere. You'll still find uh, places where like, well, let's study it one more time. But in fact, it's something that we all know. Imagine our lives without a stable place to live. There's three things, and you can add to this list. One is the housing first principle. Two is the question of the resources argument. And third is the question of tools. And I realize that tools is the new one, the really interesting one that you've gotten very involved in. But let's talk a little bit about this resources question. Because the second great impediment to communities addressing their homelessness issue is the notion that it will bankrupt them. Well, the interesting thing, Malcolm, and and you're actually a character in this story, is that communities are spending a fortune not solving the problem of homelessness. The costs are showing up typically and most profoundly in the healthcare system, but also in the criminal justice system. And when you look at um, across communities, the burden of this unresolved, solvable problem on communities is profound. Ask any librarian in the country, any EMT, any police officer, any court officer, our public workforce teachers dealing with children who are living in shelters, the emergency room nurses. You, you know, just go down the list of our public workforce and the degree to which their jobs are consumed trying to respond in a humane way to those in a situation that is itself solvable. So the costs are spread all over the place. And yet communities, I think, seeing, you know, like to build housing or to subsidize it or to attach mental health resources, we can't afford to do this. You are paying these costs anyway and creating uh, an environment of everyone losing as well as trapping uh, individuals and families in a state of limbo, which is so much more humanely and efficiently addressed with just dealing with getting them into a stable housing situation. So this proposition that homelessness is more expensive to ignore than it is to solve, tell me why that's a, what's hard about making that argument? Well, let me you know, go back to the point of your being a character in the drama, uh, Malcolm. Um, you wrote a, a really a seminal piece in The New Yorker uh, called Million Dollar Murray and explored through the life of this one sort of iconic figure in Reno, Nevada, who was known to everyone. This individual who needed someone to basically take responsibility for seeing that his rent was paid and that he had some structure in his life and the counseling support he needed when he needed it, that he was actually doing well with just a basic structure of participating in a community program. For want of that um, kind of coordination and accountability, this poor man bounced in and out of the emergency room, rehab programs, the court system, jails, running up a bill of over a million dollars in municipal services over the period of time before his premature death. And so it's it's because no one sees the picture whole on homelessness, we're allowed to think that this is actually, you know, kind of a marginal or a low cost problem or 
uh, dwell in the myth that these are individuals who are making a choice to opt out of, of society or services. And in fact, what we found is someone taking responsibility for seeing that each person who is in this overwhelmed state actually has a stable place to live and enough structure and support in their lives costs a fraction of what all of this diffuse misery and municipal burden actually ends up costing. But it's getting to that point where everyone is accounted for and everyone has a plan. And the thing that we have discovered in our work with many communities around the country now is that it's very possible to get there, that in no community, even communities that feel overwhelmed by homelessness, is the number of those experiencing homelessness more than a fraction of 1% of their population. This is a total last mile problem. And if we grab the picture whole and have that community level accountability, we find that there are many more assets, many more solutions than communities have, have imagined. I'm trying to get a sense of the level of kind of baseline resistance to these arguments you're making. Are you saying that it, this is a tough sell? I'll say where the resistance typically comes from that it's a leadership gap, that that person who, or a group of people who are well positioned to basically call it out, that you know th they are blocked from doing that for whatever reason. Um, they don't feel they have the political support. There are internal conflicts. I did not coin the, the phrase, the homeless industrial complex, but as in so many areas of failure, frankly, in terms of our civic life, you are as an organization or an agency rewarded for maintaining the status quo. So there's resistance for reasons of leadership inertia, fear about you know what will happen to my organization or my job at the agency. And there's also just in larger cities, still this myth of the overwhelming nature of the problem. And that's the way the problem is reported typically bad getting worse uh, we've done you know media scans to look at you know where are the solutions stories on homelessness and I would say community solutions and our, our, our the communities we're working with who are seeing these profound shifts we have a job to do on communications that I think is part of what needs to happen next that there are these communities that are now solving the problem have ended chronic or veteran homelessness are seeing steady month-over-month -month reductions, uh, but we are still in a world that is convinced that this is not a solvable problem, despite the evidence, but with, with no clear end game. Let's talk a little bit about these tools that allow you to see the problem. That's what you're talking about, right? You need to be able to see this problem. How does one go about visualizing in real time the problem of homelessness in a given community? What we have found is the real breakthrough moment, and we learn this with our communities. We've been you know, working this problem a long time now, and it was realizing that you need by name real-time information on who's experiencing homelessness in a community and how. Now, homelessness, we've come to see, is like saying we've got a sickness issue in our community. It tells you nothing. You need to know exactly how and what. Was there a family breakup issue last night and that needs some quick intervention and repair? Or is there a chronic mental health problem and you've been on the street for 30 years? Totally different conditions that require different groups of people to collaborate and respond. And often organizations that have 
not a whole lot to do with homelessness. You know, it's the domestic violence agency. It's it's Medicaid. You know that that these other failures show up in homelessness, and if no one's asking the right questions, then you know the problem just compounds. And so the the first step we discovered is helping communities develop quality data. That means you basically need to know with a very high degree of reliability, are you accounting for everyone? And so that means that you need to have in the room all of the outreach teams, the soup kitchens, the shelters, everyone in a community who is touching the problem needs to basically share information on who they're working with and get signed releases from those individuals and families so that they can be helped to get out of the situation or avoid it altogether. Getting to a point where you know in real time what's actually happening and how the problem is moving and changing because that very highly specific information will allow you to see where you know, your housing placement rate needs to be increased, where you have problems with certain agencies or certain conditions or certain events in your communities that, uh, that are, are creating incidents of homelessness. And in that context of having the full picture and being able to see the shifts, communities can be trained and have been trained to use quality improvement, human-centered design, how you facilitate meetings across different sectors, Basically, how you keep coming back to that shared goal of are we reducing and getting closer to zero? Let's walk through a, a hypothetical example. I am the mayor of a city of 250,000 in Ohio. I have a homelessness problem. I call you up. Question number one, if I have none of these systems in place, do I know how many homeless people I have? Probably not. You probably are relying on your annual point-in-time count that is mandated by HUD. And that's, you know, at best an estimate. We have found it's wildly off on a general basis when you What's compare- What's the range it, of- Off by 240%. Wow. Yeah. So, like, you really don't know what's going on. Uh, but and you have that snapshot. it tends to be off just because this population is so transitory and mm -hmm. hard to find and- well, there are various uh, methodologies that HUD will accept as an acceptable way of getting to an estimate. So there's great variability in that. And then there's a coverage issue. Typically, communities don't have, in one night, the ability to really understand fully what's going on. And then, as you point out, there's the variability. Just what's happening on you know, one day is not what's happening across the course of a year, as someone has said you know, a snapshot is the wrong method. You need a video to understand what's going on with, with homelessness. Yeah. As a mayor, you're probably, the best information you've got is wildly wrong, plus or minus. And then the, the second thing, that point in time count tells you nothing that's actionable. It doesn't tell you who in that population you think you have that is experiencing homelessness actually has a one night problem versus a 30 year problem. And so you have no idea, like, who's going to correct the problem themselves, which is the principal way people escape homelessness, by the way. They sort it out versus who we're going to need to actively intervene to help and kind of get everybody around the same table in order to accomplish that. Here's the people that you need to bring to the first meeting. You need the um, coalition of not-for-profits that's receiving money from HUD. You need the head of your housing authority, and you need your local VA medical center director. Get those folks in a room and that's the starting point. They're the core team, and it's that group that has to commit to solving the same problem. Like, we're all here to actually get to an end state, which is zero, which is yeah. that we don't have chronic homelessness. When you say collect 
data on this on these people. Tell me what that means. So you need to know one's name. Mm-hmm. You need to have a medical history, a background. You need uh, a profile of me. Correct. Most communities are using uh, a common assessment tool now. I think there are about 200, at least 200 communities who are using an assessment tool that basically gets your identity, but also self-reported medical conditions that correlate with what we know about premature death. You know, homelessness is a more lethal condition than, than most cancers, frankly. And also some of the critical information that can allow a community to help match you with resources that can enable you to uh, escape homelessness. Like, do you have a history of uh, being in the foster care system? Are you over the age of, of 60 or 65 and therefore qualify for senior housing programs, for instance? Are you, a, are you someone who's a veteran? That information already surfaces for communities more than what they had to go on in terms of the range of housing resources they already have access to that maybe are not fully deployed or uh, efficiently matched to people um, who would qualify for them. And so it's that basic information. It's like a LinkedIn page for the... That's a good way of thinking of it. For the homeless population. Mm -hmm. So you say to me, Malcolm, you've got to know the names and backgrounds of your homeless population. Mm -hmm. And then you have to create this kind of video Mm -hmm. as opposed to a snapshot. What do I learn from my video? How much movement is there in this video that you're creating? What you will see in communities that have this quality by name data is... Every month at the very least, uh, often every week or every day, you'll see how many individuals are moving out of homelessness, who has been directly assisted, housed in a variety of ways. First month's rent and security deposit, or we've reconnected you with family, or we've matched you to a housing resource. How many people have been housed? How many people that you have had in your system since you first had that quality data established who have just gone off the radar. They remain on what we call an inactive list, but it accounts for the first time for this phenomenon that all of us who've been doing this work have have always understood that most people who experience homelessness resolve it themselves. And so at least by moving people to, you're still aware of them, but you're not like holding a voucher for them. You're not like jamming up a waiting list thinking, where are they? The assumption becomes they have self-resolved, but they come back and they don't lose their place if something else has happened. And so on. you have outflow information to show how you're performing in, in ratcheting up your housing placements and the effectiveness of your matching system. And then on the inflow side, you're looking at who is new into homelessness this month or this week? Who has returned to homelessness, who we assisted in the past? And who have we seen come back from that inactive list? I want to give some four examples. Mm-hmm. Let's do some very specific. Yeah. So I'm going to give you a four example and tell me whether it's realistic. You come to me and you say, Malcolm, in your city, we've looked at your movie and we've discovered huge percentage of your homeless population is disabled vets. Mm-hmm. That is a great example to unpack. For instance, throughout the country, uh, and it's been a commitment of the VA since 2010 to end veteran homelessness, there are sufficient resources allocated to house every remaining veteran who's experiencing homelessness. The number is just under 40,000 based on the the best Mm -hmm. estimates. The problem has been finding and connecting those individuals or, or heads of families to housing resources. And so immediately you see, you need this kind of collective accountable structure in order to get the job done. So 
if there are veterans remaining homeless in a community, that's not a problem of resources. It's a problem of do you have landlords who are unwilling to accept the VA supportive housing uh, vouchers? Do you have programs that are inadvertently keeping veterans homeless because they're they are operating a shelter and they're not plugged into the housing resources? What this data will surface is why are we not connecting the dots in more effective ways? Because what I really am describing, I think that's happened in communities, Malcolm, is a cultural shift where once you say like, this is actually a solvable problem and it's on us, the people who have awareness of the resources, including where are the private landlords, who are the different organizations have resources, it's up to us to coordinate and, mm -hmm. and be accountable for a result, not up to people who are overwhelmed and been turned away from certain programs because they're not eligible and, and it's left on these overwhelmed people somehow to navigate the system. Once that flips, you begin to realize that it's many different problems and many different resources can come into play to solve them. And that in no one community is the number so overwhelming that once you see the problem clearly, are you unable to solve it? Give me a good, really specific thing you might learn from creating this uh, movie of your homelessness problem and how that might inform my job as mayor. Let me lift up a community like Bergen County, New Jersey, or um, Rockford, Illinois, or like Montgomery County, Maryland, uh, or Gulf Coast, Mississippi, places that have all ended chronic or veteran homelessness or not. And I think the mayor of those communities would see after significant numbers of their municipal workforce, people working in homelessness, have learned how to work as a team, have grasped the fact that this is a population level problem that we have to be all in on, and have learned, frankly, 21st century problem solving skills, like using data for problem solving, not for judgment and quality improvement, that mayor will see that there is this um, enlivened, empowered municipal workforce that is able to problem solve uh, not just homelessness, but the problems that contribute to homelessness, because it's all of this same thing of fragmentation. They're going to see that they're spending money in ways that make sense for the whole community. They're not randomly developing housing policies or homeless policies and throwing money against the wall and hoping something actually works out that they are embracing with members of their community this spirit of accountability for taking on hard problems that can't be solved with a single program or you know an app but mm -hmm. require people to really think and work differently in teams using real information to drive their understanding of problems as opposed to ideological views that those are communities that are actually position to thrive in many ways. And that homelessness, we've come to see after so many years, you know, you know, and personally working on this issue, it is really the symptom. It's not the problem. It's the yeah. symptom of this fragmentation, the breakdown that is so overwhelming to so many communities on so many fronts. Organizing people around taking on and really committing to ending this, you know, most visible form of of poverty is a way you can actually make your city work better. There's a lovely phrase the Jesuits use called descending into the particular. Mm -hmm. Descend into the particular on two of these cities. 
and tell me how their homeless problems are different. Because mm-hmm. presumably what you learn is that every city's homeless problem is different. Well, I'll pick a blue and a red community. How's mm-hmm. that? Because uh, that that's unfortunately, you know, the way we, we sometimes think we're divided. In fact, I think everywhere people are just hungry to learn how to solve problems in their communities. So let's start with Bergen County, just outside New York City, across the George Washington Bridge, really more or less the same high-cost housing market. So largely urban and suburban county. Their homelessness issues were certainly more pronounced in the poor urban centers there. They have, with the full-on support of the county executive, just one of the great leaders in the field, a woman named Julia Orlando, who interestingly was trained in uh, in emergency management before she went into this field. And so they aggregated in one place all of the players, quickly realized that data was the key to this, knowing who actually was homeless rather than developing policy based on kind of theories and bad estimates. They were uh, the first community to end chronic homelessness. They have now also ended veteran homelessness. One of the things that Julia and her team do, I mean, they are like, why is anyone even now homeless six months in the county? They have just changed what's normative. But one of the things that they do, which I think is so powerful, is they have a public meeting. I believe it's every month somewhere in the county where they go over their progress, what they've learned about homelessness, who the remaining you know challenges are. They've kind of made it a community project. So it's not simply like the, the people who are working formally in the sector. This is, I think, also a case of a community figuring out a way to move its resources around very uh, nimbly once they realized the problem was somewhat different than they uh, originally believed, putting In more money. In what ways was the problem different than they originally believed? I think they, they believed that there was sort of an endless flow, and then they realized actually it's a more containable problem and that they saw that having that highly specific data allowed them to start seeing problems emerging. For instance, older adults who were becoming homeless and coming in to seek services. So they're able to adjust how they were targeting their resources to put more resources into elder services in the community and to create specific services there. But that's one example of kind of having this line of sight into something that's emerging and that you need to get ahead of. Very much a public health kind of view of a problem. Now, in Bergen County, while Julia has done this, I think, masterful job of just making like landlords and active citizens and libraries and you know local police departments aware of, of what's happening and roles that they can play and, and really consolidating kind of the work habits of the organizations, both the government organizations and the not-for-profits who receive resources in Gulf Coast. This is like a 90-mile area along the Gulf Coast of Mississippi, like Biloxi and Past Christian and you know, smaller, like largely rural and wooded areas with these dots of, you know, small cities up to like 80,000, I think it's it's the largest city. They have in an area with almost no state resources going into housing or human services, they have mobilized veterans organizations, their faith community. They've created outreach teams out of these church groups with vans and like knowing everyone by name, they they were one of the first communities to end veteran homelessness because they were able to mobilize the the very long tradition of uh, military service and patriotism in the region and say like this is about us. It's not about these individuals who are homeless. What what kind of a community are we? 
and really tap into with their um, with their small businesses and people participating and like landlords stepping up. The sense of we needed each other and we needed help from everyone else after uh, Rita and, and Katrina wiped out many of those cities. And so in this area where there is very little in the way of kind of a, a formal government-supported safety net, very different geography, and kind of a different mindset about in, in terms of their outcomes and the way they have resourcefully uh, deployed local assets, very similar to Bergen County, yet in a very different area. Oh, I see. I've brought to bear. Mm-hmm. Once you descend into the particular, it allows you to craft strategies that are appropriate for your community. Correct. And that it's an ongoing thing. It's not like you get there once and high five it. Having systems in place and having relationships in place and having the tools in place that allow communities to solve this problem, keep it solved, and begin moving more and more upstream to like, where are the fault lines that create vulnerability for people that put them in a situation where they would lose their home? Well, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. This solvable was so thought-provoking for me, like about how and where people get their statistics from and then how and where they use that information. It seems like Roseanne's years spent working with people who are homeless and then building up community relationships gave her some really priceless insight. In fact, we asked Roseanne for a few suggestions about what we can do to make this problem a little more solvable. We'll do this with many of our guests. So here are her recommendations. First, create a new expectation in your community. You can visit our our builtforzero.org website to see whether your community is part of the Built for Zero movement in the United States. And if not, why not? Second, you could support telling a new story in your community that it challenged this idea that this isn't a solvable problem, that perception and that mindset disconnect is really one of the great barriers now. Then the idea of once your community has its number, just demand that that number be going in the right direction or that your community, your leadership and those working on homelessness are accounting for why they're not making progress and what other steps are needed that citizens can support. But it's this community level accountability and expectation of progress that is the most important thing that individuals can contribute to, that new cultural norm. And as Roseanne says, it's about changing our mindsets. You know, it's not a hopeless situation and we need to believe that in order to make it work. And remember, get involved and ask questions of your representatives. Speaking of which, I loved how Malcolm role-played being a mayor, didn't you? Solvable is a collaboration between Pushkin Industries and the Rockefeller Foundation with production by Talk and Blade. Pushkin's executive producer is Mia LaBelle, engineering by Jason Gambrell and the great folks at GSI Studios. Original music composed by Pascal Wise. Special thanks to Maggie Taylor, Heather Fain, Julia Barton, Carly Migliori, Jacob Weisberg and Malcolm Gladwell. You can learn more about solving today's biggest problems at rockefellerfoundation.org slash solvable. I'm Maeve Higgins. Now go solve it.